Why have I quit my job? Why have I, you know, bought a van? And, and why am I going to drive around the country? Well, I'm passionate about the idea that you need to be heard. And I want to stitch these stories together across the states. We're going to find the commonalities. And it's going to be really an amazing experience. And I look forward to you joining me on the job. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mental Health Today. I'm your host, Ken, and um, it's another beautiful day here on the road. I am currently in city number, uh, I think it's 86. I'm in Durango, Colorado, <laughs> in the in the four corners here, they call it. So there's four states that kind of converge right here on my way to New Mexico um, at the end of this end of this week or the middle of this week. I'll be on my way to to see some more guests in another in, in New Mexico and Albuquerque. Going to be a beautiful experience. Just like you saw me there as we were putting the van together for that JAR podcast show, looking for that thread that would kind of tie all the interviews together, or at least certainly tie the theme of the overall theme. And it really was mental health. So many of the guests struggled with mental health along the way and the treatment or finding help, even when they were looking for it, uh, getting access to it and, and or certainly getting, especially the remote. I mean, I've been to some of the smallest towns you'd ever go to and spend a night in. And man, there's no therapist there. Maybe no therapist for a few hundred miles, physic physically a therapist. And then in the state, some of these states like Idaho, Wyoming, um, you know, Utah, I don't know what the, the ratio is, but certainly by distance, it's tough. And by the final number. So this is a, you know, and I've, and I've often talked about one of the, the good things and potentially dark things coming, you know, in, in mental health space is, is getting into this and trying to get all of these independent people kind of networked and what used to be a kind of a mom and pop hang your shingle, you know, it's that's with compliance and with billing and regulation that comes along with that. Very difficult to maintain that kind of independent status. And I think you'll see more and more people coming together uh, also to find their own kind of, you know, commonality in their own kind of uh, group environment a place where they can kind of do something together, uh, not just out there by themselves. So it's Scott, you know, it was great to find our next guest, Scott Faber, uh, because he's doing a lot of that. And it'd be interesting to Scott to kind of for the audience to hear your story, your personal story. And then, you know, and also somewhere in there, what you're doing, um, what you're doing at the company now. Absolutely. I can. Thanks so much. I, I really just appreciate also that uh, you're diving into this conversation because it's one that's been a long time coming. And yeah. uh, I think we've really seen over the last, certainly post COVID, but really over the last 10 years, more and more folks raising their hand and saying, you know, it's about time this conversation came into the mainstream and the spotlight mm -hmm. was on it. Um, uh, kind of what brought me into this work, uh, I started my uh, life in the education space. Uh, I was really lucky. I grew up in a, a lot of trauma in my house. I think a lot of us grew up with uh, a lot of baggage, but I had a bunch of caring adults. And in high mm -hmm. school, before I had a vocabulary for mental health, before I knew what depression was, before I knew what anxiety was, um, pushed me in the right direction to be able to reach out to get the help that I needed. And I got a full scholarship to Harvard. I cleaned toilets all through college. Not the most glamorous <laughs> of jobs, certainly. Um, but it's a good job, though. I yeah. never underestimate that job. Absolutely. And we, we and should it, talk about that one offline. <laughs> and it, but it opened doors because what it really Absolutely. provided me was a, a new platform to look around to see what impact could be at scale. 
And I started my life in the education space, uh, trying to figure out this, the problem for access to higher education. Mm-hmm. And for 13 years, I helped half a million kids get to college and um, opened doors in rural America and urban America. We expanded to five mm-hmm. continents. But the more time I spent in schools, the more time I realized we'd been focused on better filled brains and not necessarily better formed brains. And as I was dealing with all these challenges in my life and seeing it with my students, and it didn't matter if it was Indianola, Mississippi, or South Central, or you yeah. know, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, wherever we were, we were seeing these challenges. And in 2017, I had a meeting with a mentor of mine, and I was telling her everything that I was up to. And we had a conversation that really changed my life. After I was telling her this new thing that I was going to go build in education, she <laughs> And she said, Scott, I think you just need to shut the hell up. <laughs> I was like, what? She said, listen, a couple of lessons I'd like you to learn now. Number one, bigger doesn't mean better. Number two, more does not mean that you are winning. Number three, you're not nearly as successful as you think you are or that you tell people that you are. By the way, <laughs> really number four, still a friend? Yes, still a friend. Number four, you look like crap. And number five, I don't even think you're happy. And the truth wow. is, in the three wow. years prior to that conversation, I buried six of my closest friends, drugs, alcohol, death by suicide. And I'd been battling my own suicidal ideation on a da- daily basis. And I Jesus. thought it was just the thing you push through. And here she was highlighting that everything that I was doing and saying was just not seeing the forest for the trees. And I'd kind of been looking in the wrong spot for how to have an impact in my life. And there's a a great story from an I Love Lucy episode where um, Lucy's on the floor and she's lost some earrings in the living room. And Ricky walks in and then says, "Uh, what are you doing? And she said, I lost my earrings. And he said, here in the living room? She's like, no, 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 in the bedroom. But the light's better out here. And that, in a nutshell, is what's been happening. We're seeing all these problems, but we've been looking in the wrong place for the solution. And what she wanted me to be able Mm. to see is that the challenges I was facing, the challenges my friends were facing, the tragedies that we saw all around us, not just personally, but in this country, needed to be solved differently than just saying, go get help. Because access is really the problem. And for us at Mental Health Partnership, and really what drove us was an image that was given to me by a guy named Dr. Mike Jelinek, is the chief adolescent child psychiatry at Mass General. And I said, if you wanted to make a difference in mental health, what would you do? And he said, Mm. Scott, have you seen the Peanuts comic strip? I said, yeah. It's like, you know the one where Lucy's in that little lemonade stand? It says the doctor is in five cents. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, that's your North Star. You need to be in every playground, in every community, and be that affordable. If you solve for access, Mm. you'll do something important. So what we set out to do was to Mm -hmm. find the practices that were out there that were fighting the good fight, that were providing great therapy, or were the great psychiatric interventions, or the great substance use programs, and say, it's about time we knit these things together so that if we've got a full spectrum of mental health, and I show up and my son's struggling in school and he needs a psychological assessment for his learning challenges, or my daughter is having issues with anxiety and depression, or Uncle Bob needs some help with some of the alcohol issue, mm-hmm. or Aunt Jane is struggling with isolation. You could come to one place and you could find the therapist, you could find the nurse practitioner, you could mm-hmm. find access to spravato and ketamine or 
TMS, trans, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation for major depressive disorder, and we can connect you to the right solution. That's really what we're about. So in 2020, just in time for yeah. the start of the pandemic, we acquired our yeah. first practice in Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> Not great timing for business, by the way. Perfect, uh, perfect timing. But what we did is we, we, we met some great providers and we said, all right, we see what you're doing here. How can we do more? How can we mm. grow this? And so we started with a couple offices in 2020. Now we've got 14 offices in Idaho, Iowa, Texas. Uh, we just opened in Colleen, Texas out of Fort Cavazos, um, before, uh, formerly uh, Fort Hood, so that we can get the veterans where they're at. We can be in rural Idaho where mm. there's a providers and suicidal um, uh, suicide numbers are off the charts or in central, central Iowa, where we've got great universities and we've got all of these folks in an urban, suburban and rural area still not connecting to enough providers. And so where we see our ability to mm. connect is bringing the capital, bringing the technology, bringing together the expertise that can cross these boundaries and put together some more comprehensive solutions. Really interesting. I, as we were talking a little bit offline, you're just the the logic around this kind of single practitioner. Uh, but at the same time, painting. I love the Lucy, the the image of Lucy being your 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 north star. Yeah, because that's exactly right. Right, you're not going to build some giant buildings with eighty therapists sitting in there. That's right. That that's model. not going to work. It's not going to work. Nobody wants to go yeah. to a large institution. They want to go to the people they know down the street. Yeah, they yeah, absolutely. Like a community project. And so a giant corporate solution isn't it. It's also impossible for us to just remain atomized one at a time. So there's yes. got to yes. be an organic kind of connection here. And it's been interesting in, uh, and I'll use Iowa as the example, we're working with one of our hospital partners. And they said, here's our problem, Scott. We can't afford to have full-time providers in-house. But yet, if you take a look at our emergency department statistics in a given year, <laughs> thousands of visits, not a single yes. person is diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Not a single person is diagnosed with a substance use disorder. Not a single person diagnosed bipolar. And the math doesn't add up. It's like, right, because you don't have the yeah. inside. But if you're a sole practitioner, how on earth do you wind up in the hospital to be able to provide the diagnosis yeah. to get you to the right treatment? But if we can now connect those dots and two days a week, we can put a psychiatric nurse practitioner there to be able to meet with the family practice and the emergency department to mm -hmm. get the right medication wow. or to do the psychiatric evaluation that says, you know what? Therapy is the right fit for you. Or mm -hmm. bravado, and I'll use that again, ketamine has been a game changer for folks. Depression scores of a 15 on what's called the PHQ-9 scale. Yeah. It's really severe depression. And over the course of 12 weeks, dropping that from a 15 to a 2, that's going from a non-functioning, enjoyable life to living and breathing in a new way for the first time. You so cool. Yeah, but you wouldn't know it existed unless you met the person that helped you connect to the solution. So yeah. now we've got hospital partners where they don't have to worry about staffing full time. We can be there and then connect them to the community partner that then gets them extended to longer treatment. We connect with a substance use facility that's doing inpatient residential. And rather than dumping you off at home after 30 days, we can get you into an intensive outpatient program and then have you step down to regular therapy. Mm. But if we don't build that continuum, we just keep dropping people off 
at the doorstep, hoping that the connections are going to work. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I, you know, and this, the part that kind of really kills me too, is the, is the amount of medical expense yeah. that is, that is being generated through the lack of treating the mental health side, you know, just so much mental health stuff ends up in physical ailments. It's, um, it's, it's staggering. It's, it's staggering yeah. that, that, that the amount of money that we'll spend treating the symptoms we, and we, we can't, you know, we're still missing what we said, 700 billion to, to oh, treat the actual cause. You know, and it's, it's even a bigger thing. I, I love the number that you just threw out. In this country, even before COVID, we spent about $250 billion a year on mental and behavioral health. And yet the staff service, we only meet 25% of the need. That means that there's 75% of folks out there suffering, not getting help, which means there's $750 billion sitting on the sidelines waiting for access to a system. And that's not even to discuss all of the medical costs on top of that. Because if I'm showing up with an issue for diabetes or um, a cardiology uh, issue or pick the event, there's a mental or a behavioral component to almost all of that. And we're now starting to see a greater conversation from the medical establishment, which I love hearing, that your emotional health drive so many of the physical symptoms and the physical consequences mm. of these engagements. And if yeah. I have a heart attack and I'm trying to do my, my rehabilitation therapy, but I'm depressed, you know what? I'm not <laughs> following through. And I'm going to wind up with the same problem or worse. If I'm showing yes. up and my kind of long-term issues are really related to how I'm functioning in my day-to-day relationships, a pill isn't going to solve it. I'm going to need to have a therapeutic intervention that helps me see how the relationships around me are killing me. And the best thing that I can speak to is that the longest study out there for human longevity, the Harvard Longitudinal Study for, uh, I think it's about 80 years now, the biggest factor for long-term health and survival is connectivity and connection. When you control for all other factors... It's amazing that our ability to interact with one another is what helps keeps us alive. So if I can make your relationship at home with your kids better, if I can help you yes. connect with your work better, if I can help you connect with yourself better, that connection will keep you alive and thriving. And that's not as much as me treating the problem with your foot. It's a different mode of thinking. And what we're seeing now is the first innings of what I think is a transformation in our lives. I agree. I I think this is the the coolest part for me is is actually giving mental health the place, the front place uh, in this conversation about health. Because for me, it all comes like you just described the back end of that. For me, it poor mental health causes a lot of these physical health ailments. And then it's interesting. I never looked at it from the viewpoint that the physical, once you're physically in that, in that ailment, how to get out of that, if you're already in a bad place. Well, one of the things that we're all like, wow. What we're talking about now, and I find this to be a a really, it's tragically beautiful because the idea that deaths of despair have for the first time started to show up in the statistics of a shrinking lifespan in the United States. When they say that suicide and drug overdoses are driving these terrible health outcomes and life outcomes, those are deaths of despair. 
Yes. Why is that despair there? That isn't just a physical thing. That is a mental thing. So if what's really causing us to struggle in life and shortening our lives is tied to our mental health, how is that not the front and center conversation? Yeah, I, this is the, this is the, and I think like you said, we're the beginning innings. Yeah, the the real the realization is there. <clears throat> I, you know, and it's interesting to see the government. I, so I have a question for you. Pivot a little sure. bit. Um, and it's kind of the, 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 my worry. I had a conversation or an assumption in my own head about the dark underbelly of also, you know, when, when the government starts to profess its interest in something, I always get a little bit nervous. And, you know, sometimes it's always, there's some good intentions and also sure. some, I, I'm sure there's good intentions, but, you know, it's the execution, which is always worrisome. And, I can see, and you can, you can see what you've seen as an opportunity or is a really a crisis in a way to help fix that. Other people, big investors, institutional, ruthless people will see this as a, as a gold rush. Sure. If the government announces, Hey, we're getting behind this and you and I quickly do the math on the back of a napkin and it's 750 billion, uh, you know, okay, let's pick a bad, let's pick the bad guy in the room. BlackRock's a good, easy example. <laughs> So BlackRock just comes in and starts, you know, let's let's get the number. What's the metric? How many therapy? How many patients can a therapist see in an hour? How many can they see in a day? What's the ratio? What's my ROI? How can I? So I start going around and your competitor may be BlackRock buying up firms once they establish the metric and they know the ROIs. How is that? A da- am I am I making this up in my head or is this a real I don't, think, I don't think you're making it up. I, I would cast it a little bit differently. I, I totally okay. hear where you're coming from. And uh, I've got friends that work at BlackRock, so I, I, I want to be careful about oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> they use. Yeah. But, I, I don't want to pick a boogeyman. I mean, I don't want to no, 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 no. it's the easiest boogeyman I can think of. You know, your, your point is a right one. And, and I think that there's a lot of palpable fear that investors in the space are only chasing the dollar. But yes. there's a way to unite the interests here. And one of the most mm. important things that we can do is focus on value-based care. And this is something that really only in the last decade, and, and uh, Obamacare really pushed this front and center. The system before was a fee-for-service mm. model. And a yes. fee-for-service model is how many people can I see so that I can fill yes. this amount of money? And that's the wrong way to look at it, because if we're not focused on outcomes, then we're really looking in the wrong place. But the idea of focusing on outcomes in mental and behavioral health has not been a topic of conversation until recently. So you might see a therapist for decades, and I'm not exactly sure what your outcome was. And now Mm. what we're starting to see is the introduction of outcome measures. I mentioned before the PHQ-9 for depression. Okay. Okay. Over time that if you're seeing this treatment leading to a better health outcome, that's something that investors can get behind because it saves Mm -hmm. money in the long term, but also patients and providers can get behind because it says, I'm delivering a better value for you and I'm seeing you improve. And one of the interesting lenses that we have, we have a practice that's focused on trauma-informed care. Trauma-informed care is really complicated. If you have issue with an eating disorder, it's not like I can just say there's one way to solve this. There might be elements of depression. There might be PTSD. Mm -hmm. There might be anxiety. But if I'm now using outcome measures and diagnostic tools along the way, I can begin to peel back the layers and say, therapy was helpful over here. Mm -hmm. But at the same 
time, an intervention like, and I'll use TMS as an example, transcranial magnetic stimulation, it's a non-invasive uh, treatment for major depressive disorder. In six weeks, 20 minutes, five days a week, you sit in a chair and it's kind of like a little magnetic pulse on your head. Yeah. It changes your kind of brain waves and it stimulates your brain. If I could pair the therapy with that intervention, I now might be able to save $100,000 of acute costs that you might have faced yes. your issue when you attempted suicide or when your drinking led you to crash a car into a store that led to the destruction of yeah. five other lives. So if I can start to tie the data with the dollars spent, I can get the investors and the providers mm -hmm. and the patients on the same page with a North Star that says, What's going to make your tomorrow better than your yesterday? Mm -hmm. So if we can use outcome measures and value-based care, I think everyone could align behind it. So I think it's not wrong to fear the investment dollars. 100% agree. I think it's also, I understand that therapists and providers are very scared about just using numbers. But if we don't have yeah, data no. to drive us, it's hard to see if we're doing well. And I can tell you from my days in the education space, and I spent decades there, there was always a fear of standardized tests, standardized tests with a boogeyman. This is not a good <laughs> The thing is, if I yeah. don't have measurement for whether or not you read well, all I'm doing is patting myself on the back that you showed up to class. So there has to be a number of different vectors because the problem is too complex to use any one number or to pretend like yeah. numbers don't matter. So I'd like to put those together. Mm. And that's one of the things we bring to providers. We use um, uh, outcome measures that integrate into their electronic health record system. Okay. So now during the course of treatment, after session number five, they say, you know what? Rather than just guessing whether you're getting better, I can see that over the last four weeks on Thursdays, mm -hmm. you had a really tough time. What happens on Thursdays? Oh, Thursdays is when you drop off your kids to see your ex-husband. Yeah. And when you do that exchange, your, your stress spikes. You know what? What we need to be able to do is start to schedule a check-in on Thursday afternoon so I can bring your stress level down. We could do some mindfulness exercises. And now all of a sudden that handoff goes so differently. So it's just about getting smarter because historically this has just been stuff that's just lived in the shadows. We never talked about Interesting. it. Yeah. Waking up every day and thinking about putting myself in front of a train was not a thing that I talked about because I thought I was broken. But when I started sharing that, people are like, you know what? That's not normal. There's a reason. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's not normal. It's not. And I just didn't know how to talk about it. But again, it's just, it hasn't been part of the conversation until recently and shows like this conversations like this, this is what's so important. The more of us mm -hmm. talking about it, putting stuff on the table, the more we're going to find the solutions together. Agree on that, that last part. I mean, the conversations are, are great right now. It, that is such a great take. Uh, I mean, I really appreciate that, Scott, the idea, and I'm a data person. I mean, I live my whole corporate life living in data. Uh -huh. So, you know, and, and uncovering the, you know, getting back to the root cause and addressing the root cause. So, you know, that speaks to me when you talk about that is what the ROI part, I, the, the evil part is that ROI part, but you're right. The beautiful side of that equation, which I totally missed is the outcomes is there will, they need to, they will use, cause these are smart people, right? They will use, it's not just the ROI. They need to have that proof that it's working and then where to further invest where you're getting the best results. Right. So they'll put more money back to where you're getting the best. So Absolutely. I, Oh man. Okay. 
you know, you've got me in a completely different, um, a completely different view on that. I, I love it. The data, well, man, because as soon as you start dating data, I'm all in. Yeah, well, like, you know, and, and it's funny that you frame it that way too, because um, I read a fascinating study. I think it was in Chicago at Cook County Hospital. They were doing interventions for um, uh, for heart issues and heart attacks in the hospital. And they were seeing that if they tried to look at the patient through a different set of lenses, they could get better outcomes. But they couldn't make the treatment stick because until they could mm -hmm. make the case to the insurers that this would save money yeah, over time, time for multiple yes. events, right. they couldn't get the funding to make the treatment stick. So there right. has to be a marriage of the money to the outcomes. Otherwise, yeah. we can never get this to be a sustainable model. So I, I completely understand or I, I completely appreciate how much data can be used for evil, but also for good. Yeah. And especially when it's on the, if you've got both sides of that equation, it's going to work out perfectly. Right? Yes. I think, you know, they're, they're driving for the best possible use of the dollar. Yep. You know, and in this case, it's also for a return for themselves, which could potentially go dark. But if on that side, you are bringing all of that focus on the outcomes because that will drive their investments, then there's a, there's a natural balance there. And that's, it's actually quite beautiful. I, I think there is a symmetry there that we had been missing for a long time. Yeah. And part yeah. of that actually, I, and I'll use this as just a, an observation over time, is that I think a lot of us are scared of numbers. Um, I think mm. that there is an inability for folks to grasp numbers in general. And we talk about this all the time. Like, what does a trillion stars mean? Like, I, like our brain <laughs> really capture what that is. So when we uh, talk yeah. about healthcare and we talk about lives saved and all of the rest, it's just hard for us to get there. But if we spend a little bit more time digging in, I can start to see my friends as mm -hmm. more than the numbers. And I can start to see the numbers as my friends. And when we put those two pieces together, then the folks that I've buried stop being just painful memories. They become motivations to make sure that someone else doesn't become another number. And that's part of what I think AI, and it's going to be fascinating to see where this takes us. It's terrifying, but it's also inspiring. Right. Like, I don't know where we're going to land here. And I hope we can harness this for a force for good. But I think what we're going to see in the next five to 10 years is also going to be transformational there. Yeah, it's going to be it's I I only see the good right now. I mean, I'm sure there's there's a lot of evil in there on the on a military side or or some other kind of, a, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot in the wrong hands you could do yeah. with it. But but for me, what I'm using it for right now is quite good. This these episodes uh, for this show, I take the transcripts. Uh -huh. And we've, we've partnered with an AI company that has an interface for, for basically setting up your own database and then using AI to provide a query feature. So all of these, so somebody can, will be able to, once we get the buttons put up on the website and everything, you can query any topic. And if we've talked about it, you'll get the transcripts and maybe the video and the spot on the, on the actual iTunes podcast, where to go find it. And along it's fascinating. I, I'd love to share, you know, I came across a company recently uh, called Elios, um, uh, founders out of Tel Aviv, um, just started talking to them and I don't know enough about their product to, I'm not here to endorse anything, Yeah, yeah. yeah. but um, uh, their take on AI for therapeutic interventions is fascinating. Fed Ooh. in 
millions of sessions. Um, yes. So that you can understand the transcripts of what's shared, recording the voice and starting mm -hmm. to figure out what are the key moments that have been shared? What's the emotional tenor of those moments? So that those can start to inform a treatment plan. Because whatever we're trying to comprehend in the moment, without the picture of how to connect it to everything else that other people have seen, we can't make all those connections. But if AI can help us start to see- AI how can do it. AI can do it. And I think that's going to be for us, you know, really over the next couple of years, transformational and helping us really harness, I, I think, those observations at scale. Uh, what was I, I did talk to somebody and they were saying something very similar. And then AI was going to help the doctor uh, with potential um, like uh, drug recommendations. Yes. Like it would, you know, and what it would come and say, you know, Based on, you know, based on what we've, we've heard so far, these are, you know, in other patients and, and wow, instead of the, the hundred patients you're managing through your life or your 500 patients that, you know, in a pretty small, you could have 500,000 sessions, analyze the treatment and coming back and saying the final formula was this for your kind of client. I, I love that. Oh, thinking. man. We're starting to see that play out and, and in mental health. It's also pretty interesting for a long time. Most prescriptions are done in an experimental way. Let yeah, me absolutely. Yeah, you don't so, know. Yeah, let's see how it works over a little bit of time. But what if I could feed in your social demographics? I can feed yep. in your traumatic experiences and I can line that up with the experiences of millions of people around the world. Yes. And I can take the genetic makeup that you have so I can see what you will actually do well with. And rather than take six years to figure out what the right balance is, I can tell you that based on the data, this is the right pill at the right dose to be able to get you to a better place. That's coming. If it's not already here for some folks, yeah, it's going to be somewhere. And and I think what you're doing, I think what you're doing with the with the partnership, you'll you'll be able to get everybody access or more people access to that kind of systems, those kind of tools quicker. That I mean, that's the yeah. hope. What, what we've seen, and um, this was a stat that floored me early on, and it sounds like Ken, you and I are both data folks. Um, that up until a couple of years ago, maybe about 10 years ago, only about 20% of mental health providers used an electronic health record system at all. If you start to think about where that data would even go, you're like, wait a minute, well, how could we even make these observations? But I don't blame anybody if historically notes were essentially on an individualized atomic basis. How would you connect all those dots? But one of the key things we did, we bought uh, an electronic health record system and uh, RCM business called TheraManager. And we did that so that we can have access to the ecosystem, the pipes, to say, yeah, okay, yes. Well, if there yeah. are a thousand practices out there serving a hundred thousand clients, yeah. what can okay. we begin to see about this pattern recognition that says this is the evidence-based care that leads to better outcomes? So if we're not all feeding that data in, and I'm not talking about like a scary big brother way, but I'm talking about like anonymous, just aggregated data sets that start to say, yeah. let me take a look at where you're from, what your background is, what's worked, what are the interactions of these drugs, what were the outcomes? It's just too much for any one person, as you pointed out, an experience of 100 clients to ever know. If we don't do it at scale, we're just missing out on a major opportunity to inform our decisions. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a major opportunity to inform the decision. And that's straight. I mean, the, I, I cannot imagine going three, four years trying to get your, you know, every three months coming in, trying to dial in your prescription. And, and, and that's been the story for whoa. this country for a for hundred years. Whoa. 
is that it's really just been a, a, a trial and error system. And nobody thinks it's the best, but we just haven't had all the tools in one place. And partly, yeah. I think we also haven't had the right catalyst. And I'm not saying that anybody yeah, wanted right. COVID, but what COVID did is it shifted the conversation in so many ways. It opened up telehealth as a solution for people yeah. that had no access. You highlighted rural populations. We're in Idaho. My wife's family's from Idaho. And if you were to try and find access to providers, it would just be virtually non-existent in most areas. So now Absolutely. you've got people coming into the fold with telehealth. Now you've got the electronic health records being pooled in a way that says, let's start to Love see that. What and all of this is coming at a, such a velocity. It's hard for any of us to even keep up. I think I wake up a lot of days with this elephant on my chest of being like, I'm not doing enough. I, this is not going to work. And yet, I don't know what else we can do except hang on for dear life and say there's got to be something Absolutely. better than what we've had Absolutely. before. Oh, just keep crying it, Scott. You're on the right path. <laughs> I, you know, you're, 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 you're on the right road. You're in this fight. I, I think, you know, let, let the, uh, the elephant's in the wrong house. I, the, the more of us that are willing to lean in from personal experience or professional desire, and again, whether we're chasing the dollars or we're chasing, we're running from our own traumas, the more of us here, the better we are together. And we yeah. say this all the time oh, at uh, Mental Health Partnership, we're just better together. I love that. God, it's been an awesome conversation. Um, I just and it went it went some great places. I feel like I'm just better of a I'm a better person for it. My <laughs> cup's a little bit filled. I've got a little bit more knowledge. I've got a better idea of how the fixes are going to lay out. Uh, really, really informative time for me. I really appreciate it. Ken, I, I'm so appreciative of the time. And, and like I said at the top, the fact that you're pushing this conversation and honestly, in ways you let in with somebody, um, and we talked about this offline, somebody that you lost in your own life, death by suicide. Yeah. Um, and if we don't talk about those things and we don't have these conversations, we're never going to move the ball forward. So I'm honored yeah. to be a part of the conversation. One small contribution, those grains of sand come together to make a big, beautiful Thank beach. You. Hopefully we'll find ourselves smiling in the sunshine somewhere soon. Yeah, and I've got all your stuff up so people know how to find you, especially in this business, people, anybody watching or, or listening to it ultimately. And just a big shout out. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you're still here, uh, you know, on the audio tune. So, Scott, this is live now. In about two weeks or three weeks, we'll have up the audio version on all the, the regular channels. And that's a little bit more shareable. Um, awesome. And again, I'll see you in 30 seconds. I got a little commercial and uh, see you on the other side. Thanks, Ken. Take care. Yeah, loose, baby. But we're about to go and make this vessel with these great professionals yeah. in public glass. We're not part of the community, but we're from the outer family of glass blowing. Yeah, we're going to go make a magical giant jar with optic lenses so that if you turn it, it changes all the time. So if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at will change. 